We're in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read verse 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to hear, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. You are, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You may be seated. Um, what we've been doing for the last, I don't know, year and a half or so is going through two years, two years, something like that. We've been going through the book of Matthew for a while, and we are continuing in the book of Matthew. Um, it's been breaking down as you look at, you know, big ch- hunks of chapters, a couple chapters at a time, two or three. Um, we've been breaking it down into little subsections, and that's what we're doing right now. So we're finishing chapter 20, so 18 through 20. Uh, the, the, the book of Matthew is kind of about the Messiah. It's about... Um, it's written to Jews and it's written, it's, it's telling those that were very acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah that's being spoken of in the Old Testament, that Jesus is that particular person. He is the Messiah. And so kind of the big picture as, as, we, as we've been looking through Matthew is calling it Messiah. And as we've been breaking it down chapter by chapter, um, we've been giving it little subtitles. And the subtitle that we're in right now is called Kingdom Community. And so as we're looking at kingdom community, chapters 18 through 20, what that's been doing for us is just showing if you're going to be in the community, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom, if you're going to be a believer in Jesus, what are some of the things that you need to know? What does it look like to be in there? And so we've looked at marriage. We've looked at forgiveness. Um, God, Jesus has told us about what it means to um, know how to handle divorce, know how to handle children. Um, and to, so today what we're going to be looking at, there's been a couple other examples, but today what we're going to be looking at, starting with uh, chapter 20, Verse 17 through 28, we're going to be looking at what does it look like if we're going to be in the kingdom community to be a servant. So that's where we are, um, starting at verse 17. We're going to understand what it means to uh, be a servant. Now, before we do this, I want to point out a couple things um, that are kind of standing out for us as big uh, road marks as we've been going through Matthew. If you look right with me at verse 17, I want to point out one thing, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to... Um, jump in. It says in verse 17, it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Now, just as you read, this might just kind of be something you pass through, but we need to let it kind of sink into us about what's going on here. Uh, Time and time again, as Jesus has gone from city to city to do ministry, it says something along these particular lines where he withdrew or he got away or he went Um, He went away from the people as they were trying to say, be king or kill him or whatever. And he withdrew because it wasn't time for him to be king and it wasn't time for him to to die yet. And so he would always withdraw. But this um, chapter 20, verse 17 is is turning that corner now for us. And this march to Jerusalem, this is the final. This is the final destination. This is just not another city to go to. This is just not another destination. This is the destination. This is the end. His destiny, this is what he was put on earth to do, was to come and die in Jerusalem. And so um, next time, as we're going to be finishing chapters 18 through 20, which is kingdom community, next time we're going to start in 21 through 23, where in 21 through 23, we're going to see that Jesus is the king of Jerusalem. And we see that, and we know that because he's entering in Jerusalem here in verse 17. And as he go, it says there in 21, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, he's going to interact with the people of Jerusalem, namely the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these particular people, and demonstrate to them that he's the king of them. And so as we're going into this particular text today, let's, let's all kind of um, focus our minds on the fact that 
this is the turning point for Christ. This is where the end of the road has finally come, and he's going to be obedient to the will of the Father to go to die for the sins of the world all the way to the end. So there's, there's a seriousness as we enter into this particular text as he's talking about being a servant um, that's casting a shadow into these verses for us that this is, this is the final destination and the destiny of Christ to be the one that would be the, uh, the one put forward for the sins of the world on the cross. So let's pray and then we'll look at servanthood and what it looks like in gospel community and kingdom community. Lord, as we look at your text, we know that this particular text today, every verse in the Bible is important. Um, but we know that in this particular point in your life, as we look at verse 17, this is where you set your face, as Luke says, set your face like flint to be obedient to God, to go to Jerusalem because this was what you came for, to humble yourself and die for the sins of the world. And after that, therefore, God would highly exalt you, as we see in Philippians 2, where Paul recounts for us you being a servant and serving us. And so as we look at um, gospel servanthood, that it all begins with and predicated on and built on and finds its meaning in the gospel, um, as we see what you've done for us in your death, burial, and resurrection, that we'll learn from that and we'll know what our life of service looks like to our fellow man. Be with us now, and as you've promised there in verse 28, come and serve us right now as we look at the word. Serve us in our understanding and serve us in the illuminating of the scriptures by the power of the spirit to understand the scriptures. But more than that, be determined to be obedient to what you're leading us to go do after this. We love you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So servanthood is what we're looking at today, and, and this, is a, uh, this is a difficult subject to get into. Um, it, I, I thought it a little ironic that as I've been studying this week, God has given me the opportunity, if you will, to be a servant the last couple months. Um, my wife's pregnant, um, we're having our fifth kid, and we know, but anyway, um, we're having our fifth kid, and um, two months ago or so, her back got hurt, and so she's been um, a little bit out of pocket, not, not able to do quite as much, and God has given me a chance over the last two months to serve her, to do as many things as I can around the house when I get home. And while I've, you know, I've tried to embrace this opportunity as, to chance to serve, I'll be the first to admit here as I'm preaching this sermon, maybe it's more for me than y'all, um, because while I may have been doing the act, there have been times where my attitude wasn't Christ-like. I just, oh, come on, God, make her back better, you know, that kind of thing. So um, as we're going into servanthood, uh, we're going to see, as Christ is our example, that being a servant does bring with it some kind of leadership authority. Um, But the way that Christ is going to define for us leadership and authority is put it on its head and say, the way that we're a leader is authority is by being a servant of all. And so it's just ironic as we're going into this, God God has been preparing me for a couple months for me to preach and feel really convicted as I tell you to be servants um, and hear it with my own ears that I need to be a servant. So we're going into verse 17 and let's, um, let me read a verse for you, uh, not a verse, a quote for you from a guy named uh, James Boyce that's going to help us see just how difficult being a servant is. I don't know if you've experienced it. You know, I've been a Christian for almost 30 years now and I still very much have difficulty um, wanting to serve people. It's just a, a selfishness of mine. And perhaps you identify with this. I'm assuming that maybe some of you will. But this is what he says. Um, How little we know of serving others. Even after many years of Christian living, how little we know of serving others. This may not be a mark in your life, but I would bet if you really did some self-reflection, um, the idea of serving others maybe doesn't mark your life as much as you think it does. And if that's the case, this is a perfect uh, sermon for us to listen to. He says, Humility reminds us of the need to die to ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus, and serve others. It is one of the most difficult things we have to learn. So yes, and amen, thank you for salvation, Jesus. And he says, come follow me. Yes, I want to do that. And then he says, now go be selfless and serve others. And we're like, oh, that's a difficult struggle. And it's something that we'll identify with the rest of our life. So he's going to, in this particular set of verses, help us understand, get a better grasp um, to know how to do this. 
And so what you're going to see in the title is Four Distinctions of Gospel Servanthood. The reason why I'm calling it Gospel Servanthood is not because it's 2013 and modern evangelicalism, and the only way to preach a sermon is say gospel in front of anything, um, is because really Jesus is going to do that for us. If, you, if you'll notice with me here, um, right there at verse 18, right there at the beginning of our text, and right at the very end, 28, he's going to book in all of the teaching on being a servant with the gospel. And so that's why I'm calling it gospel servanthood, why it's predicated on, begins with, finds its meaning, finds its foundation, and finds its sustaining ability and power. It's all about the gospel, and that's the only way we're going to be servants is because of the gospel. Look at right there in verse 18. This will sound very similar to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, where Paul um, recounts or reminds the Corinthian church of what the gospel is. And basically he just says, I'll remind you, brothers of the gospel, that Christ was buried, was, was, was dead according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised again according to the scriptures. That's the good news of what Christ has done. This is where Jesus is going to tell the gospel, and we're going to see it in 28. But look what he says here. Um, this is the third of four reminders, or the third of four um, predictions of Jesus' death in the book of Matthew that he's going to give to his disciples. And each time he does this prediction for them, he gives them a little bit more information, and it, it kind of falls on deaf ears. That's part of the plan of God. It wasn't until Acts that um, you see it in Luke, at the very end of Luke, that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. That's in uh, the very end of Luke. But we see here, um, this is what he's going to tell them. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them. So you can get the picture. They're going to Jerusalem. The 12 disciples are going. Perhaps even some other people are with them. Um, I think that we can infer that because it says he took the 12 disciples aside. So if there weren't other people, why would he take them aside? So there's, there's probably a group of people kind of walking there and on the way he said to him third prediction of four that i'm going to die and we got to just remember I, I know i keep caveating but deal with me um what's going on here is we got to just really try to understand what's going on in the minds of these disciples all they've understood is israel's history king david king solomon setting up a big throne ha- and, and they're kind of in charge of everything and they've got people that come and maybe they have some positions as well and they let them do some stuff but really all they've understood is, is, is the, the idea of an earthly kingdom and they just think jesus is going to do this again he's going to set up the kingdom and he's going to be a king and he's going to give some power and authority to different people to kind of run little segments and he's going to be over it all they don't have any concept they don't have any understanding of what we have maybe benefit of which is revelation where in heaven, it's just Jesus on the throne. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need our help to kind of look over stuff for him. He's sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning over every single thing. We are glad to be there. We're so happy because he, we've been redeemed by Christ. And we are simply there to live lives of worship and glory in him, not have some kind of position in heaven. They just don't have this concept of the coming kingdom. They just only are thinking an earth kingdom. And so Jesus looks at them and he's going to say, we're going to Jerusalem. And they're like, yes, we're going to finally see it. And then he's going to say, and the son of man. Now this son of man for us is, for, is because, remember this is written to people who are Jews and they are well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. He's signaling to them to look back to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, and the Isaiah 53, by the way, um, is known as the suffering servant. So this is, again, pointing to us about the the servant that died for them in Isaiah 53. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. So the disciples knew these chief priests, these scribes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they don't like Jesus. They're enemies of Jesus. And they're well aware they don't like him. And he's saying, I'm going to be delivered over to them. They're going to condemn me to death. It says right there, um, over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn me to death. Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for us. Because Christ has been condemned to death, we don't have condemnation. Just, just an awesome gospel note. Um, and then it says, after the chief priests and scribes, those who are Jews, will condemn me to death, they won't do it themselves. They don't kill people um, because they think it's above themselves. They just condemn me to death. And then they hand it over to the pagan Gentiles and say, we've condemned him to death. We just need for you to do it with your hands. And it's, he says it right here in the second half, or in 19, and deliver over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged that's just beaten really really badly and crucified so this is horrific news for the disciples who had a mindset of what was going to be happening and all of a sudden he's telling them again for the third out of four times i'm going to die and then after that he says and i'll be raised on the third day there's just no question this raising the third day is just sailing past their minds like they they are not getting that at all you know 
So we have that first beginning part of the gospel there. Uh, and then at the very end, look at me, uh, look with me at verse 28, where Jesus is going to talk about the gospel again. Going to use the Son of Man language again and says right here in 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He's, he's even using the incarnation, which is the coming of him, in language of being a servant. I'm serving you by coming and dying for you. And it says, and to give his life as a ransom a payment for a redemption for many, for those who are, are going to be believers. So we have the gospel on both ends of this particular text. And now we're going to see in the middle about servanthood. So that's why we're saying this is the four distinctions of gospel servanthood, because it's all finding its meaning and ability for us to do this in the gospel. Um, so where are we? Where are we? We're, let's go to verse 17 so we can, we can, let me show you the four points here. It says in, in 17, and as Jesus was going up to the Jerusalem, he took his 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the gospel. So the first distinction that we need to know when it comes to gospel servanthood, which is what he's calling us to do, he's calling us to be servants. The first distinction we need to know is it begins with the gospel. Gospel servanthood, the way that it happens in your life, the only way that you will be a gospel servant is that it begins with the gospel. We must let the gospel inform us of who we are in Christ, completely righteous, completely forgiven. And that way, when we know that, now we are, because we're forgiven of all of our sin, free now to go serve others. So the first distinction of gospel servanthood not random servanthood, gospel servanthood, is that it begins with the gospel. The gospel has secured our salvation, therefore, or thus, now gives us the ability to go serve. Gospel servanthood. You can serve others, but you won't serve them for the glory of Jesus without the gospel. So the first distinction of gospel servanthood is that it secures for us salvation. So if there's a distinction here with number one, because I'm going to try to make a distinction with number four as we get to number four. Um, there's a distinction here. We're kind of talking about justification. The, the declaration of God of your righteousness at salvation. The moment you put your faith in Jesus and God says, righteous now for all time, never lose it. You are now justified. You are, have a right standing with me. So let's keep going here, and we're going to see um, in this first set from 20 to 24, we're going to see a, a point, and we're going to see it one from 25 and on. But um, here we have, in verse 20, uh, a recounting or a replaying of a situation that's already happened. Uh, if you remember, uh, maybe you don't, but it was like, I don't know, it's at least six months ago, uh, chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. Let's look at that, and let's, let's see the scenario of what's going on, because it's, it's about to happen again. In chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, the disciples, the 12 disciples, are all bickering and arguing, I'm number one, no, I'm number one. There's Jesus, I mean, he's number one, but besides Jesus, I'm going to be the best. And they're kind of having this big disagreement about who's going to be the best disciple. And so, in verse 18, it says, At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And that infers, you know, outside of you, Jesus, you're the king. But outside of that, because they're thinking earthly, you know, you rule and reign, but you need us to give us a little bit of authority to be over stuff. Who's going to be the greatest of all those people? And so they're having this dispute, and Jesus, you know, wants to help them understand what a, what a petty argument and the wrong argument. And so he brings a little child in from him, and calling a child, he put it in the midst and said, truly I say to you, unless you um, turn and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The, the disciples, thick-headed, just like us, don't get it. They don't get it at all. They think, hmm, that's a good lesson. Two chapters later, but who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So, um, but this time, they don't do it themselves. Instead, a couple of them, James and John, the brothers, send their mom. They send their mom. And so the way I read this, and again, I, I'm not sure this is the right way to read it, but this is just how I read it. And so I, I picture this mom like the everybody loves Raymond mom coming up and, and wanting to talk, kind of meddling in and asking too much and thinking her boys are the best in the world and, you know, they never have any kind of craziness. But So I see, I see whatever her name is, the, the meddlesome mom coming in and saying, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, um, 
came up to him with her son, so she made them come, how humiliating, um, and said, um, and you can just picture Raymond and Robert like, oh, mom, you're really making me be here. But anyway, this is the way I read it. It could be completely historically inaccurate. This is the way I read it. Um, And said, kneeling before him, so she kneels, she shows some homage respectfully, which she should, um, before Jesus and asked him for something. And he said, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. So she comes up, she's like, can you just do me a favor, Jesus? Um, I've been thinking for a little bit, and I've got two really good boys. They're just, they're great. Um, and I know that you said that back in chapter 18, 1 and 2, but we, we just want to know which one of these 12, and I think it's my two, are going to be at your right and left. Could you just say that they're going to be at your right and left? We just need to get all that clear before we keep moving forward. Is that okay? Now, again, just... They are thinking of the, the worldly kingdom, and they only have categories of what it's been like. And so she's coming up, and she's saying, I would like it if my two boys could somehow, Jesus, share in your power. Could they share in your prestige? Could they share in your preeminence? Should they, could they share in your something that starts with a P that means authority? Could they share in these particular things? Because um, it's alliteration, so power, prestige, preeminence, authority didn't work, but that's what we're saying. They're saying, I want to I share in those things. Since, you know, you're God, I would like it if we could somehow share in that uh, thing. Now, we have the benefit of looking at the, the, re- the final kingdom and knowing that's ludicrous. That's insane. So Jesus, very kindly, just looks at her and says, basically, I, I think he's kind of thinking, I hear what you're saying. And you're thinking of one thing, and there's really a whole different thing that you don't even know anything about. So he just graciously, I think firmly, but graciously answers her, you don't know what you're asking. You, you don't really know what you're saying. You're asking for God to share power, prestige, and authority and preeminence with man. <laughs> That's not how it works. Sorry, the heaven will not be set up like that. And so he just basically tries to help her see, you don't really know what you're asking. You, you can't do things, you can't do enough, earn it up, do, do the things that are going to bring that about. There's no earning when it comes into the kingdom for power and authority and preeminence and prestige. That's not how it works. And so if we kind of pull back and we see that we're talking about servanthood here, um, the second thing I want you to see, a distinction of uh, gospel servanthood is this. It is not earned. Gospel servanthood is freely given to us by God, by faith, and it is a tremendously good gift to us. But the right, and I say right, or the gift to be a servant, we don't think in those categories, but this is how God wants us to think. The right or the gift or the, the, the greatness of getting to be a servant is never earned. You can't earn that because then you're not going to be allowed to share in, in power and preeminence and prestige and authority with him. There'll be a sense of it, but n- not like we're on some kind of remotely equal footing with Jesus. So Christian servanthood cannot be done without the gospel, which we saw it all begins with the gospel, but it also, there's not a moment where it's earned either. We're, we're continually pressing in. Disciples, they're going to get a chance to lead, these disciples, and in some senses, every single one of us are going to have some sense of leadership and authority over something, whether it's just your children one day, or if your husband over your wife, or in some senses, we're going to have, it may be great, it may be small, we're going to have these things, and what he's wanting us to see is, when that comes, when that happens, whenever you're given that, um, it's supposed to be in the category of the mindset of, I'm a servant here, and this is a great gift that God's given me, and the only reason I'm do, be able to do this is because of the gospel. And the only way I'm going to continue to be able to have this gift of being able to serve others is not because I've earned it. I can't buy it. It's only because of Christ's graciousness to us, which is really the, uh, the point of last week. If you remember, like the whole parable that we saw in 20, 1 through 16, as different laborers are coming into the day and they all got a, den- a denarius at the very end, this is what he promised. What we saw is an attribute of God is um, he dispenses grace the way he wants to. And so any opportunity we have to be a servant is because God is dispensing grace to us freely as much as he wants, inviting us in to get to be servants of his. So the second distinction I want you to see is, is that it is not earned, nor can it be earned, that we get to be servants. I want to I sit at your, your right and left hand. Let us have some of this. And he's just saying, um, 
you don't understand what you're asking. They're not picturing a cross, a death. They're not picturing this long period of time after the death to 2013 and who knows how much longer where the church now is going out and making disciples. They're just thinking instant restoration of the kingdom. Jesus is going to be the king set up right here in Jerusalem and we are going to kind of be his servants to go but also have some authority just like it was in the Old Testament. They don't understand this long period of the church making disciples, being servants to to their fellow men throughout the world. They don't have those categories. And so they're asking if they can earn this. (coughs) And the truth for us is is that we can't earn it either. So he just looks at him and says, you don't know what you're asking. And now he's going to say to him right there in the end of 22, are you able to drink the cup that I, um, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, um, this isn't a challenge for them. Uh, it's an explanation. He's not challenging them to drink the cup. Instead, he's trying to explain to them about what's about to happen to him and what's really about to happen to them. Um, so let's, let's talk about this cup language in case you're not familiar with, with 2,000 years ago Hebrew culture and what they mean when they say, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Um, if you remember, right before Jesus died, he's in the garden and he's praying for any other way for this to happen besides the cross. In Luke twenty two forty two, 42, Jesus, in his ultimate form of humanity, in the ultimate time of, he was 100% God and 100% man, but as he's talking here, talking in angst of what's about to come, he's, he's sweating blood because he's so um, anxiety-ridden about what's about to happen. He knows he's about to go uh, die on the cross, this horrible physical death, but he knows in that, all the wrath of God of all time for all sin is about to be poured out onto him. He's never not known perfect relationship with God. And he knows I'm about to experience the most awful thing in the entire world. And so in his humanity, he's, he's having some anxiousness in the, uh, in the garden as he's thinking on it. And he's, as he's saying this, he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will. And so this, this cup is God's plan for him. That's, that's basically what it means. God's plan for him. So he's looking at these disciples here. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? Are you able to do God's plan that I have to go do? And so there's a couple questions there. Number one, th- they're not able to go and be the savior of the world. But they do have a cup of their own. A future, a God's plan for themselves. And so he's kind of talking to them about this. And they, without any idea what they're saying, I mean, just no idea what they're saying here. And so as, just by the way, notice this. As the mom comes and asks the question, Jesus knows that it's the sons. And so he, he kind of turns away from the mom and just directs the question straight, his answers back towards the sons. That he knows that they didn't learn the lesson of Matthew 18. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And they, the sons of Zebedee who are present, say, we are able. They're not able. They just don't have any idea what they're saying. And here it says, he said to them, you will drink my cup. Now, he's not telling them that they're going to be the savior of the world and die on the cross for the forgiveness of the world's sins. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that you are going to, in the similar way that I am suffering, you are going to suffer for the cause of Christ. And we can read on. We'll see in Acts 12, I think it's verse 2. Verse 2. Um, Acts 12, 2. James, the son of Zebedee, one of these brothers, is going to be the very first Christian martyr. And we also see, and if you read in Revelation 1, John, the other brother, um, the only disciple that wasn't martyred um, is going to be boiled in oil and exiled to the, Al- the island of Patmos for the rest of his life, experiencing suffering. So he's looking at both of them and he's saying, you're going to experience suffering. You're going to get a cup. It's going to come to you. Um, but it's not what you're thinking. You're going to now, notice this, they want power, prestige, and authority. And he's saying, you're going to go suffer for my name and serve others, telling them about me. That's taking what they're asking for and flipping it on its head and saying, following me doesn't mean authority over everyone in the way that you think. It means becoming a servant of all and telling them about Christ, and it may mean suffering for you. It may mean the kind of authority that you don't think. And so we see here... um, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. It's, it's the Father's to grant. He says, um, but it is 
but it's for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. The, the pre- preparation here by the Father, by the way, just as a, uh, maybe a, a hat to hang, to hang uh, something of, to hang your hat on of just something that's great, is that uh, this preparation of the Father, Jesus <coughs> is trying to help us see that God is sovereign, He's in charge of everything, and He is unfolding His plan that He has had before the end of time, plan A, no plan B, and it is absolutely happening without any problem it's going to definitely happen god's plan and god prepared it all the way beforehand and every detail that he has prepared is going to unfold that's how sovereign god the father is in unfolding this plan and so it says and when the 10 heard it that's the other 10 they were indignant at the two brothers maybe because the the two asked first you know oh they asked before me Oh, maybe they're going to be first and not me. It could be that, but whatever. Or it may just be that they're indignant, like, these two guys, they just love power. How could they ask this? Glad I didn't ask that. Like, it could be one of those kind of things. But I think more than likely, they're indignant, probably out of jealousy, not humility. They're also, I think, missing the point as well. And so here, we're going to see our third thing in this next set of texts in 25. It says, but Jesus called, um, but called them to him, and he said, so basically, we've gotten to the point where they've asked to have authority. Jesus is telling them that it's all predicated on the gospel. It all starts with the gospel. It's all about the gospel. You can't earn the right to get to be one of the servants of God. You, you're seeming to misunderstand this. So what I want to do is gather around. I want to give you a teaching right here to give you an understanding about what it means to be a servant of mine. And he's going to use an illustration that they're all very familiar with, the Gentiles. And he says here in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So he's saying, all right, guys, you know how Gentiles have, have authority? Look over there at the Gentiles. They are pagans. They have authority over people. And whenever they, have, they, they rule and reign with iron fists, they're not kind at all. And so what he's saying is, whenever you give power to people, over people, and it's not the kind of power that is given um, to exalt and glorify Christ when you give that, and maybe you've seen this, when people have a lot of power over people, that power corrupts them. It makes them um, very hungry for it so that they want to lift and exalt themselves more and more, and they'll do anything to maintain it, and they'll be ruthless to the people that they're over. Ruthless. And so he's looking at the, the, the Gentiles and he's saying, look at the way they have authority. It seems like the way you're asking for authority, disciples, is that you want to be like that. And he says, look at those Gentiles, how they lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. You see that demonstration? And look at verse 26. It shall not be so among you. Now this is, this is very interesting right here. Very implicit in verse 26 is, well, the obvious, I don't want you to be like the Gentiles. But don't miss this. He is telling them that they will have authority. It's implicit in there. Authority is coming to you guys. You're going to have a lot of authority. Acts 2, I mean, we are really close to it where the Holy Spirit drops and all of a sudden these guys are in authority over scores of people. Scores of people. And he's saying, it's coming. You're going to get it. It's not going to be like me. You're not ultimate authority, but he's saying it's coming. And before it comes, I want you to understand that you can't be like them where you lord it over and you're ruthless and having that authority and that power is going to corrupt you. Instead, when it comes, it has to be flipped. And when you get this authority, you have to go and serve people now. Whenever that authority comes, which it's coming, I mean, it is coming. You're going to be, just in one sermon, Peter, 3,000 people are going to get saved. There are going to be people that look up to you. And the only way you're going to live out this life and drink the cup, which is death for some, most of you, 11 out of the 12 of you, is that you are going to serve others. So Spurgeon, as he's looking to this, and he's saying, it's going to happen, and no doubt it's going to happen. He says, if we aim at greatness at all, which is what's, this is promised to these particular disciples. We know that their name will be great in some senses, not over Jesus. He says, if we aim at greatness at all, it must be by being great in service, becoming the minister and the servant of our brother. So authority's coming, and maybe you have it now, but the way that it's supposed to be 
given to you and the way that you're supposed to use it as a follower of Christ is that if you have any kind of authority over others, don't be like the Gentiles and let that power corrupt you and become sinful in it. Instead, you want to be great in serving others. You want to be the minister or the servant of your brothers. Now, the disciples still don't get this. Like, he, he's telling them all this, and at the Lord's Supper, we see in Luke 22, that they still do not get this, and a dispute arises among them at the Lord's Supper about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The same argument again. Another dispute about the exact same thing. And what does Jesus do? We know that the dispute arose in Luke 22, but John 13 tells us what happened. When the dispute arose, what does Jesus do? He takes off his outer cloak and he puts on a robe and he goes over to them and he washes their feet and he gives them the same teaching again. You've got to, and there was no question, I've said this before, no question about who was the leader in that room. As Jesus was washing feet, serving them, there was no question about who was the leader in the room. No one thought it must be Peter. No, everyone knew it was Jesus. So he's helping us see that servanthood is the mark of Christian leadership. Servanthood is the mark of gospel servanthood, if you will, just to make it more, you know, 2013. Um, So he's saying, it will not be so among you. You must be humble and serve, and the power that's given to you must be done for Christ. Now, look what he says here. He's going to use two little words to help them in their first century understanding, understand what he's talking about. It shall not be so among you. Let me, let me have point number three. I don't, I think I might have skipped it. Here's point number three. The the third distinction of gospel servanthood is it is others focused. It is others focused. It's not self-focused. This is what Jesus is saying. You're going to get it and it's not about you. It's about others. We are told to leave by serving others. The gospel tells us that we should lead by being a servant and a slave of other people not making them serves and slaves of us. This is what he tells us right here in this verse. He says, it shall not be so among you. In verse 26 and 27, he's going to use, if you notice, there's a servant and slave. I mean, if you're in the ESV, you probably have a little two beside the word servant, a little three beside the word slave. You can look down and see the Greek words, diakonos and doulos. I'm going to explain those in just a second. But he, he's trying to help them understand, what do I mean? And he says, you shall not be like the Gentiles, but whoever would be great among you. He's not telling them not to not to shoot for greatness. He's just trying to help them have the right category of mind about what greatness is. You want to be great? Okay, this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be in the kingdom community. A distinction of being the kingdom community with servanthood so that you can be great is that you would be a servant, a diakonos, a table waiter. Or, he says, and whoever would be first among you, he's looking at the 12 disciples, you want to be first among these people? That's what you're asking for. You want to be first? This is how you be first. Be a slave. Be a doulos. Be a bondservant. A, a bondservant is someone who goes and willingly submits themselves to someone and says, I want to be your slave. It's, take your m- mind out of the African slave trade. This is not what we're talking about. A bondservant, a doulos who comes to someone and says, I want to be your servant. I'm willingly submitting myself as a doulos to you. Now, this is what he's saying. So he's, he's holding out for them diakonos and doulos. Diakonos, who is the deacon. This becomes an office of the church in 1 Timothy 3, um, is a servant. They are a table waiter or a doulos who is a slave or a bondservant. And he says, this is how servanthood is supposed to look for you. You're supposed to be a diakonos and a doulos, of which he's going to tell us in just a second. Christ is fully both for us. That's where it gets crazy. That's point number four. That's where it just like, we all need to stand and just like shake our hands in, in glory and say, praise Jesus for that. That's good news. We're going to get to it. I don't think you'll do it, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping. I've been hoping you will. So it says here in verse 26, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Spurgeon very cogently summarizes this force like this. To rise in Christ's kingdom we must descend. To rise in Christ's kingdom, we must descend. Just echoes John the Baptist, where he says, he must increase and I must decrease. You want to be great? And he's not, 
putting them down for that. I think it's an okay thing to call people, even in this Remedy Church, I want you to excel in being in some kind of authority over people. Just don't let it corrupt you and do, be it like the Gentiles. Instead, when you get this authority over some segment of somebody, use it for Christ's glory and realize that if you want to ascend, you have to descend even further. It's the way that Christ's kingdom works. That the further we descend, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Which is what he says here in 1930 and 2016, right as we're coming into this. It's just a a reteaching again and again of these same things, trying to drive it home into them. All right, so let's go into this amazing thought that I just said, where Christ now is 100% both our diakonos and our Doulos, and you're saying, wait a second, Jesus is my servant? Jesus is my slave? Can you say that in church out loud? Is that right? Um, heresy meters just kind of, you're a crazy fud. I want you to see it right here. Um, he tells them to do that, and look what he says. He's going to say it himself in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man, again, pointing back to the suffering what? Servant. He's the servant. Pointing back to Isaiah 53, came not to be served, but to serve. This word serve, to serve, is the Greek form of diakonos. He came to deacon. He came to table weight. He came to serve you. He came to be the servant of you. Wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. What does this mean? Because I think if we can get what this means, this will explode us into or push us deeply further into um, really desiring to be servants of others. And when we read James Boyce quote in the beginning where it says, it's one of the most difficult things we have to learn of being a servant, I think that becomes far easier. Let's, let's get a grasp on this. Now this fourth one, um, four distinctions of gospel servanthood, I, w- I would add just to the fourth one, you could say it's four distinctions slash implications. I think you can put both little titles on this fourth one. Here's the fourth one, is this. Um, If I can find it, here it is. Jesus is serving us now, thus continuing our ability to serve others. So when we say Jesus is our servant, Jesus is coming and being our servant, the purpose is not for us to prop ourselves up as King me and come serve me Jesus. (laughs) That's not the point at all. Jesus is serving us right now in order for us, don't forget number three, to be others-focused. So the only way that I can, which I already know I'm supposed to do, is go serve others, be others-focused, to give them and become a servant and slave to them is the fact that Jesus is continually serving me, giving me the power to be able to go and do that. So as I said in the very beginning, if I was going to make a distinction here between point one and point four if point one is that justification this is the sanctification how am i supposed to become more like jesus how am i supposed to grow in holiness how am i supposed to every day find myself to be more like christ the only way is because jesus is every day serving me he didn't come to be served as if he needs anything from us he's self-sustaining he's god he operates by himself He is serving us, and that's what he's saying here. I'm going to put some Bible under those comments in just a second. When he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now, I feel like I need to just help you with something, because you're like, wait a second, I serve Jesus? I like to say that, I serve Jesus. I go on mission trips because I want to serve Jesus, and I like to um, serve people at work or whatever, and I'm doing that because I want to serve Jesus. And when I'm here serving and setting up stuff and being down the kids, I'm doing it because I want to serve Jesus. I'm not trying to erase that language for you and say you're not serving Jesus, okay? In a sense, yes, we do serve Jesus. We do. But in this sense, what we're trying to say is he didn't come to be served as in if he needs it to be self-sustaining. Let me, let me read something to you from Acts. Um, chapter 17, just so we can understand. And he's going to ground the argument of Jesus not needing us to serve in creation. He's going to ground it in creation. Look at, this is Acts 17. You can just listen if you don't want to flip. Um, I was in Bible drill, so I can get there pretty fast. Um, Just kidding. Um, When I was a kid, I did three gold stars every year. All right, 24. What am I doing? 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. So he starts with saying, God created the world and everything in it. If God is outside of creation and 
it was not there, and he was, and he always was. He stands outside of creation, and creation, um, in order for it to be here, is dependent upon God. In order for God to be here, he doesn't have to have creation. He is completely self-sustaining without creation, and that includes you and me. His existence does not depend on us at all. Out of grace and mercy did he create anything in the world. And so he's given this illustration about creation as helping us understand that God is wholly other than us and completely self-sufficient and that he doesn't need us at all. He just graciously created creation. And it says in 17, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord, I mean ruler over heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. You don't confine him to this tiny little room. Like, he's God. He's over everything. And then he says, nor is he served by human hands. Now, in a sense, our human hands do serve the Lord. But we don't, self, we don't sustain God in his existence by our service. It's not like God's hungry and he's like, I just wish somebody would bring me a sandwich. I'm, I'm just so emaciated. Peter, somebody. I mean, it's not, that's not the case up in heaven. So, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he gives himself, um, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We are sustained by God, not he is sustained by us. He gives us life, breath, and everything. Anything we give to him is only because, he, and only because he's given it to us. So that's the point that Jesus is trying to make when he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And even in this moment right now, he is serving us. While we're here and we're singing out, we're serving him and we're giving our money because we want to serve or we were down in the kids' area the first because we want to serve or we set up stuff or we're going to pick up the pens and the, the Bibles after because we want to serve. He is serving us right now. As we're reading the scriptures, he is serving us by helping us um, understand the scriptures, illuminating our minds, giving us a deeper passion for the gospel right there on both bookends so that we would want to go. And as we go out and we love our wives, love our fa- husbands, love our fathers, love our mothers, our fellow man, the way that we're going to do that is because Jesus is serving us, giving us the desire to want to be a servant so that we can serve others. So servanthood, gospel servanthood, is created by the gospel of Christ and sustained by the gospel of Christ. Which is really good news because if you're like me, you run out of the desire to want to serve like the first time something doesn't go right (laughs) or the first time somebody doesn't say thank you enough, right? Because I'm selfish. Maybe you're not. I am and I like all that. Pat me on the back and tell me how great I am. That's the only way I'm going to keep doing it unless it's gospel servanthood. And Jesus is serving me and therefore I am going to be freeing others. So as we're talking about Jesus serving us, it means Jesus is our servant. It doesn't mean we get to tell him what to do. That's not at all. As a matter of fact, he just told James and John what they get to do. They get to go drink the cup of suffering. So it does not mean that we tell Jesus what to do. Um, It's saying that he is going to tell us what we do, and you're, watch this, He's go, he tells them, you're going to go suffer, and as you're going to suffer, I'm going to serve you through that suffering, and keep you, and be your portion through that. That's pretty amazing. That's astonishing. Here's your cup. I will serve you all the way through it, and be your portion. And that's the same thing he does for us. He gives us everything we need in life in our sanctification and that's his continual serving of us and it's all because of his gracious mercy that's the whole point of verse 15 in chapter 20 am i not allowed to do with what i want with my grace i dispense it as freely as i'm as i want and as you're going through life the way that you're going to serve others is because i am every moment serving you the lord has now stooped to serve us, even right now as we're looking at these particular scriptures, illuminating and open our eyes to understand and have a deeper passion for him. And he, as he says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself to the point of death in service. He descended down to the, to the earth and died on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him into the heavens, as it says in uh, 2.9, I think, 2.9 and following in Philippians 2. So this is the model. I mean, if we want to know God, you're calling me to gospel servanthood. What does it look like? 
Jesus. I mean, this isn't Sunday school. Like, what's the answer in Sunday school? It's Jesus. And here, really, like, it's Jesus. How do I serve others? Look at Jesus' life. He descended from heaven to earth. That's how we're supposed to descend and want to serve others. And the way that we're going to be great is to be a servant and slave, a diakonos and doulos of others. And how are we going to do that? Because I don't have the desire and passion to want to do that. He's going to serve us the entire time through life so that we can do it for others. That is really amazing news really astounding love for us that he's calling us to do something and with us doing it in us through us for his glory the entire time and so as we're going into uh this next section he's going to very end of 29 he's going to explain something about ransom and one commentator said this this verse 28 might be one of the best most important verses in the bible this is what he says um you not come to be served, but to serve. How am I going to continually do that? I don't have the willpower to keep doing it. And he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how. You're going to remind yourself that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for many. So let's, let's unpack that for a second. Because we've got to have the right proper gospel motivation in order to be proper gospel servants. And this is what he says. Ransom for many. This ransom describing Christ's work of redemption. This is the purchase price for freeing slaves. That's what a ransom is. It's the purchase price for freeing slaves. Which is us. We were slaves of sin. The ransom was paid. We were redeemed. We were pulled from being slaves of sin. And therefore, we are now slaves of others, doulos, diakonos, bondservants to others, and slaves to righteousness, as it says in Romans. From slavery to sin to freedom of being slaves to others. which is real freedom. It's the whole point of Galatians. So we are ransomed for, this for is in the place of. So why did that payment happen? It was for Jesus died for you, but he also died instead of you. So we were ransomed. He died for us and instead of us for the many. And this many, again, is just the same wording. The son of man and many is the same wording of Isaiah 53. If you read, I invite you to read it this afternoon, Isaiah 53. Um, And this is the same language pointing back to the suffering servant, the Messiah that would come and give his life for his children. So it's all tied together beautifully. By the way, Good Friday, we're unpacking Isaiah 53. I couldn't be, like, more pumped about that. But, um, so Isaiah 53 is, the, is the, kind of the reference here for those who are Jewish looking at this and they're understanding the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is our model and example of how we're supposed to go be servants over people, un- under people. We descend, and the more we descend, it seems in Christ's kingdom, the more we may have authority, but we don't care about power, prestige, and pre- preeminence and authority. We care about Jesus having it, and we get it the more that we serve, and he gets more glory and not us. And it's just amazing the way the, the kingdom works. And so then, we have this little story, and I want to conclude with this little story, because we ask ourselves, how are we going to do it? I want to know how to do it. And this is not an accident. This, Matthew didn't just accidentally put this little story in. He's given us a real-life illustration about people that were ransomed and remembering who you are before Christ, remembering the ransom that happened to you. Now, we want to be careful about ransom. We use this word ransom. just want to point out one thing about ransom. Ransom connotes, denotes the word payment, but we need to be careful about who the payment was made to. Payment to who? Well, um, I know y'all love systematic theology, so I'm going to read it to you because I know y'all love Grudem and uh, y'all all going to go home and like finish it off today. And, but let me, let me uh, read you one little payment or one little part here. He says, when we speak of redemption, the idea of ransom comes into view. The ransom is the price paid to redeem someone from bondage or cap- captivity. And he says, though we were in bondage to sin and to Satan, there was no ransom paid to sin or Satan himself. We, the ransom language is used, but it wasn't paid to them because they didn't have power to demand such a payment. Who are they compared to God? Pa- payment was made, and we talk about Jesus being a pay- payment, and so we just got to be careful the way we talk about it. He says, nor was Satan the one ho- um, who's holding this or was offended by sin. Uh, Satan's certainly not offended by sin. Um, and he wasn't requiring a penalty to be paid. He can't hold anything over God's head. He said it's sufficient to note price was paid, which was the death of Christ, and that the result is that we are redeemed. And that's the, that's the way to talk about it. You don't need to say that a 
a payment was made to Satan. No. God doesn't have to do anything Satan demands. Um, and so here we're going to go into how are we going to do this, and I want to conclude with this little, little story here. If you would, follow along with me here in 29 and, and put yourself in the perspective of these blind people. That's, that's the point. You're going to see these blind people, and you're supposed to identify with them and realize what Christ has done, and that's the way you're going to be a servant. He says in 29, As they went out from Jericho, a great crowd followed, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. This is us. They're blind physically. We, before Christ, were blind spiritually. Sitting on the roadside is helping us understand that they had absolutely zero hope of improving their situation. They, they had no hope of improving their situation. I, I know in today's culture, blind people can have a, a, a fine life. But in this particular culture, if you were blind, your portion in life was to sit on the side, ask for people to give something to you, and you have no hope of changing it whatsoever. And he's trying to help us see, this was us before we were, before we were ransomed. We were just like them, outside of Jesus, sitting on the roadside with no hope whatsoever. And the only hope we have is the exact words that they say. And if you're in Christ, this is what happened to you. It says this, And behold, there were two blind men sitting on the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. This was the declaration of your heart if you're in Christ. When you realized that you were just like them, had no hope of changing anything, Lord, have mercy. And look what happens. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. And there may be, there may be things that try to keep you from following Christ. And what is their resolve? It says, they cried out all the more. I have no hope. You can't, you can't tell me salvation is found in anything else. And it says, they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us. How are you going to serve others? Take yourself back to where you were before you were in Christ and realize you've been ransomed and this was your state. And when you realize what Christ has done for you, that's how you go serve. And it says, and stopping Jesus called to them, just notice the tenderness of the Savior and how he dealt with them and how he deals with us. What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. He opened our spiritually blind eyes to see and understand the gospel. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. And when he healed you spiritually, immediately you were given sight to see the intricacies and the beauties of the gospel. And when you were ransomed, now, day by day, he serves you and calls you forward to be able to go serve others. And you just remember what he's done for you. How am I to do this? Oh, thank you for serving me right now and remind you how you've ransomed me, Christ. There's no other way I could do it. And look what it says. After they received their sight, they went about and did what they wanted. No. They followed him. They followed him. My life is now about following my Savior, becoming his servant as he serves me so I can serve others. So Christ certainly changes the perception of of what they thought it meant to be a follower, servant of Jesus. And that's what he's calling us to do. I think this is a perfect time for us to go into the Lord's Supper. And we're going to reflect on what Christ has done for us at the table by giving his body and his blood for us. So we're going to have a a song here. And what I want you to do is, during this song, um, just stay seated and listen to the words of the song. Listen to what's being sung And we're exhorted in 1 Corinthians. um, For those that are in Christ, we're exhorted in 1 Corinthians. As we're going into the Lord's Supper, Paul tells us, whenever you're going into the Lord's Supper, that you should not eat or drink of the Lord's Supper without discerning ourselves. We should examine ourselves and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as you examine yourself, realize your condition, spiritually blind beforehand. But then what Christ has done, always, always, don't just remember where you were, but remember what Christ has done. And during this time, we want to remember and contemplate and think on those things, and then we'll go into the table. So during this song, I invite you to go through that, think through that, realize that you were these two blind beggars on the side of the road with no hope, but Christ came to you. 
And as you reflect, when you're ready, you can stand and you can go to the back or to the front and get the bread and the cup and come back to your, your uh, chair during the song. And then I'll come up and I'll lead us in a time um, to go through the Lord's Supper. If, if this is your first time at Remedy um, and you are a believer, I want you to know that you're invited to the table here at Remedy. All Christians are invited to the table at Remedy. If you're not a believer and you're here observing, um, I invite you to just stay in your chair and watch and um, listen and observe and see what this is all about. And the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus' death, will be explained through the bread, the taking of the bread and juice. So I just invite you to listen and think and pray and contemplate and um, as this song's being sung and when you're ready, go to the front or back and get those. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll respond. Thank you for your son, God, that you gave us. Be with us now as we go to the table. Help us realize who we are in your presence and what you've done. And may that cause us to respond in worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.